I've put down for our text uh, this morning, 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, but I, I'm going to start with verse 10 because it really forms a connection with this passage, and I'm going to read through the uh, end of the chapter because it uh, all fits together, even though we might not quite make it uh, through that in our consideration. So let's hear today, then, uh, God's word to us. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. You'll notice that uh, John mentions the message that you've heard from the beginning, the news, and we could say this is really the only news. You know, what we, what we read on, in the media, what we hear in the media, we really ought to call that the olds, <laughs> because it's the same old story of human sin and suffering. But we have something new in the gospel that John's talking about here. And remember, he introduced us to that, or he reminded us of that, I should say, in the beginning of, of his uh, little letter here. If you go back to chapter 1, he, he sets it out right there at the beginning. That which was in the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And of course, he's taking us right back to Jesus, the revelation of Jesus to the apostles. This is an apostolic witness that we have received. Okay, that's the message. That's the news. And he identified it further down in uh, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 1. This is the message or the news we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Remember, he, he sort of took us back to creation with that imagery, didn't he? Uh, the, the creation of of the physical universe that we live in, and beginning with the creation of light. Of course, he's using here light as a 
metaphor for righteousness, for purity, for holiness. And so he goes on to say in verse 6, the second part of that message, if we say we have fellowship with them while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So, so there he's giving us, in a nutshell, the gospel. Okay, with this imagery of light. And he's saying, of course, not that believers walk around all the time with a physical light shining on them, but that the light of righteousness, the righteousness of God, has been imparted to us through Jesus Christ. And so we have fellowship with him. Remember, that's that really strong word that sometimes translated communion. Uh, it's the Greek word koinonia and, and conveys the idea of a very strong bond and intimate fellowship with one another. He says we have that as we walk in the truth and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. So, so he's setting out here this, this idea of this lifestyle of walking in confession. Okay, remember, John never teaches uh, instant perfection for Christians. He, he never says we never sin. But he says, if we're walking in the light, we're in the process of confessing that sin when God brings it to our attention, when his word convicts us or his Holy Spirit convicts us. We confess that sin and we receive forgiveness. And so we walk in harmony, not just with him, but with one another as well. We're brought into this company of believers, uh, not just in a local congregation, but worldwide and indeed across the generations. That, that's the message that he's been emphasizing to us. And now in our text, he expresses it slightly differently. Look again at verse 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. Okay, almost identical words to what he used there at the beginning of the letter. But now he puts it differently. Look at what he says here. That we should love one another. The news that God has imparted in Jesus Christ is that he has made human beings capable of love. That's in a sense what he's saying here, right? Look back at verse 10. That serves as sort of a bridge here. And look at the parallel that he, he puts here between righteousness and love. By this is it, it is evident who are children of God and who are children of the devil. And, and that word devil there is literally the accuser. Uh, the, the one who accuses human beings, rightfully accuses them of their sin. Okay, you can tell whether you're a child of God, whether you're a child of the accuser. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is, now see he sets the next, next words in parallel construction with that, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So he's, he's saying there, isn't he, that to do righteousness is to love your brother. To do righteousness is to love your brother. To walk in fellowship with God is to love one another. That's what he's saying here. And so he rightfully says then, well, this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And he begins to flush that out here. He's going to talk about this more in the next chapter. He mentions it again in Second John. But, of course, this is a very key part of Jesus' teaching to the disciples. You remember he... He gave them the commandment to love one another there at the Lord's Supper. 
that last night he had before his crucifixion. That was one of the important things that he wanted to say to them. A new commandment I'm giving, I'm giving you, that you should love one another. And of course, it's new in the sense that he is, he is giving it in a new context, in the context of the new covenant. But of course, that, that command to love goes all the way back to the old covenant, doesn't it? That's the way Jesus summed up the old covenant. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But John points out, well, in a sense, it goes back even farther than that. You probably noticed in our text that John uses a, a number of negative images here to, to teach a positive truth. That's often helpful for us as human beings to have someone present us with the opposite so we understand the concept that we're being taught. And so that's what he's doing there in verse 12. Okay, we're, you're supposed to love one another. Well, it's the opposite of this. We should not be like Cain, who was the, of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Isn't it ironic that righteousness provokes the hostility of wickedness? That, that's always the case. Okay? Uh, Cain was provoked because his Brother Abel worshipped God in the right way and was accepted by God, while Cain did not worship God in the right way and was not accepted by God. And God himself pointed that out to him, remember. But Cain is provoked, and rather than being moved to repentance and to doing right, he seeks to lash out at his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. He adds to his sin by lashing out at the one who had done right. Uh, that's a dangerous path to go down, isn't it? To have your sin pointed out to you, and then instead of repenting, to lash out. And unfortunately, that's often the, the way with human beings. That's the opposite, John's saying, of what we're commanded and because that is the case, he goes on to say in verse 13, don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Don't be amazed. Don't find it remarkable. Okay, because you're living in a way different than the world, and that's going to provoke their hostility. Why is it that we're not that way? In a sense, he's implying the answer to that in the next verse. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We have passed out of death. And of course, he's not talking about physical death here because we haven't died yet. The people that he's written to haven't died yet. So he's talking about the spiritual death they were in. You were spiritually dead. God gave you life. You've passed out of death into life. Remember John 3 is one of many passages where Jesus talks about that, that spiritual birth that brings life. Uh, without that spiritual life, really, you're just, you're just a walking corpse spiritually. You have physical life, but you have no spiritual life. John says, we know we've passed out of that condition of spiritual death into spiritual life. And how do we know? 
there's sort of a sub-theme sub here of assurance. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're in right, in right relationship with God? That's sort of a sub-theme of this paragraph. He's saying we know that we pass from darkness into life, uh, light from death into life, because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. See, they're still in that state of spiritual death if they don't love. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Again, going back to that image of Cain is sort of the type, the typical of the, uh, of the physically alive but spiritually dead person. That's what's in, in mind there. And his equating here of hatred with murdering is right out of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount that we looked at some time ago, isn't it? Remember, Jesus said, don't think that you've, you've fulfilled the commandment against murder just because you haven't, haven't actually physically killed somebody. If you've hated somebody in your heart, you're guilty of breaking that command. What he's saying, of course, is that the seed of, of murder is hatred. So if you've, got, if you've got that seed in your heart, whether it actually comes to fruition in action is, is not the case. You've already broken the law in your heart. So he's putting up these, these two ways of life, isn't he? Hatred and love. Hatred and love. But before we go any further, we want to be careful that we understand what he's talking about when he says love here. Because this is not love the way that our culture talks about it. Okay, we, we need to be sure that we're redefining love according to Scripture and not trying to take the world's definition of love and put it in here. Hey, if you take the world's definition for love and put it in here, you're going to experience a lot of frustration and a lot of disappointment. Okay? Uh, love, as is talked about in the world, is a love really that, that has to do with our feelings and our emotions, isn't it? In, in fact, at its root, worldly love is about self-satisfaction. Right? If I say love a particular food, I'm saying I, I like that food. I find it satisfying. If I say I love my particular job, or if I love my particular hobby or avocation, really what I'm saying is I derive satisfaction from that activity, right? And sadly, oftentimes when, when somebody says, I love you to another person in our culture, what they're really saying is, I get something from you that I want, okay? I find my satisfaction in you. And, and indeed, we have relationships of the most intimate nature in marriage founded on that idea. I, I love you means I think I can get what I want out of you, whether it's sexual satisfaction or companionship or whatever it is. And inevitably, Inevitably, that kind of love, that kind of love that is really a seeking of self-satisfaction, runs out. Okay. 
because no person is perfect enough to always satisfy another individual. I always say that to, to couples that I'm counseling before marriage. Don't think that you're marrying this person is going to make everything uh, turn out right in your life. It, it, don't, don't expect them to satisfy your deepest longings. If you do, you will crush them with that weight, and you will wind up frustrated and bitter yourself. But worldly love doesn't work. It doesn't endure. It, it's easily frustrated and easily impatient. And in fact, even when we get what we want, even when we, when we have our love satisfied, ironically, as we have that love satisfied, it, it, the satisfaction begins to fade. It doesn't seem quite as exciting as it did once. And, and after a while, we, we may even become bored with that which gave us such satisfaction in the beginning. That, that, that's the hedonist dilemma. Either, either the, the hedonist is, is frustrated because he can't get what he wants, or he gets what he wants, and, and it become, becomes dull by repetition. Worldly love is foolishness. That's not what John is commending here. So when, when you hear the scriptures say, love one another, and even love uh, your enemies, don't think that's telling you you have to have some kind of warm feeling toward them. That is not the case at all. That's not the kind of love we're talking about here. We're not talking about a warm feeling towards someone. We're not talking about a desire of seeing something appealing in someone. That's not what we're talking about. John tells us exactly what he's talking about in our text, doesn't he? You've probably already beaten me to that point in verse 16. By this we know love. In fact, interestingly, he, he, he actually says, literally in the Greek, by this we know the love. <laughs> in other words, by this we know true love, the real love. This is the love that I'm talking about, he's saying. This is the kind of love that God commands. And, and how does he define that? Well, he defines it with the, an action, doesn't he? By this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You want to know what true love is. You want to know what the love that, G that God is commanding you to have toward your brothers and sisters in the faith. You look to Jesus here. What's the love of Jesus as he lays, lays down his life? Did, did he lay down his life because you were just so attractive and so appealing? Because he somehow lacked something that you could supply? <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous when we say that, isn't it? In fact, Scripture says exactly the opposite. There is nothing appealing in us. There's nothing appealing in us. And God has no lack. He's not lacking anything the way we are to need to get something from us. Why did, why did Jesus lay down his life? Well, it wasn't out of some feeling, okay? It, it was a clear choice for him. Love, the way the Bible's talking about it here, is a choice. 
It's an act of your will. There is nothing in, his, in Jesus' human emotions, in his human makeup, that made the idea of crucifixion appealing to him. Jesus is not a masochist. Okay? He, he doesn't derive some, some kind of strange pleasure from suffering. And much less, much less was it appealing what the cross really meant, which you remember he wrestled with in the Garden of Gethsemane, the drinking of the cup of God's wrath. There was nothing appealing in that. It was, it was the worst possible kind of thing for him to face because it meant a break somehow in ways we don't understand. It meant, a, it meant a break in his relationship with the Father when the Father would pour out the wrath of God against sin upon the Son. It meant, it meant Jesus crying out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's nothing appealing about laying down his life in a physical sense or in a human sense. He delighted in his communion with the Father. He was always talking to the Father, always talking about the Father. There's nothing appealing to him in the crucifixion. But he chooses, he makes up his mind, he makes a decision, he, he, he exercises his will to do this. Because of what it gained. Because of what it gained for you. It's the very opposite of self-satisfaction, isn't it? This is self-sacrifice. Love, as scripture defines it, if we're taking John's description here, love is self-sacrificing, not self-satisfying. It is totally different from worldly love. Totally different. It is self-sacrificing. That's the whole image here of laying down his life for us, sacrificing his life for our salvation. That's love, as God's defining it, as Scripture is defining it. And, and, and why is it that he does it then? Well, it's because he delights to do the Father's will. He has a love for the Father that trumps the suffering that he's going to experience. Okay, he chooses the path of suffering and self-sacrifice because he's chosen the will of the Father. Remember, that's what he prayed over and over again in the garden, isn't it? Not my will, but yours be done. Love, as Scripture defines it, says not my will, but yours be done. It's directed by the will of God. We're talking about something totally different than what the world offers here, aren't we? We're talking about something much stronger, much more, much more thoughtful, and requiring much more strength, aren't we? This is the kind of love that, that John is saying that we are to have for our brothers. But I love the way he complements this definition in the next verse. Because he, he goes from this very 
deep image, this, this awesome image of the love of Christ to very practical, day-to-day kind of illustration, doesn't he? Look at verse 17. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother's brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? God's love is shown in very practical ways. You don't have to wait until someone needs you to risk their life, risk your life on their behalf, okay? Now, that's, that's wonderful when it happens, okay? But don't wait for those spectacular, spectacular occasions. Look for the very real ways that you can exercise that choice that sacrifices yourself. Okay, a, a husband should be willing to lay down his life for his wife. I mean, if we're going to go with Paul's analogy in Ephesians, there's an image there of Christ in the church. A husband should be willing to lay down his life for his wife. Not many of us husbands are called on to do that. Uh, but you know, sometimes it's those small things that are much more difficult to do, aren't they? Uh, some of us would, would much rather take a bullet than to do fill-in-the-blank okay, that our wife wants. Okay? But John's saying there's a very practical side of love. It sacrifices itself for others. The expression he uses here, has the world's goods, don't think a rich person. Okay, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, now you guys that are real wealthy and you see somebody, that's all he's saying. The expression that he uses here, has the world goods, that means you got enough to live on. That's what he's saying. You have a livelihood. Okay, you're, you're not worried about where your next meal's going to come from. Okay, you, you've got a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food in your stomach. That level of well-being it, it is, is the, the threshold here. Okay, If you've got enough to eat and you see somebody in need, your brother in need, then love shares what you've got. That's what he's saying, isn't it? How can you close your heart against him? Uh, he, 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 he uses a, a, a word here that, well, they, they, they didn't use the word heart in the same way that we did. They, they used the, a term that is related to your guts. Okay? How can you not feel moved down here in your gut by the need of your brother and want to share what you've got? That's what he said. Love does that. Love does that. Loves in very practical ways. And so he brings his thought to a climax here in verse 18, doesn't he? This is the, the imperative that sort of defines our, our, our topic here and defines this passage. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or truth. I don't want to hear you talking about love, John's saying, unless you're doing something about it. 
Okay, don't say you're going to love. Show me that you love. That's really what he's saying, isn't it? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or in truth. And in truth, how do we, how do we love like this? How do we have a self-sacrificing love? Well, really, really, Jesus says, you, you got to start out your walk with me in this way. This isn't something you're going to add on to your Christian experience. This needs to be there from the beginning. That's why he so often in his ministry talked about the cost of following him. At times you read Jesus and it looks, looks like he's discouraging people from becoming his disciples because he talks about how much it costs so much. And in, in fact, ultimately he says, unless you're willing to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. You hear what he's saying there? Self-sacrifice has to be a part of your relationship with me from the beginning. From the beginning, you have to realize that the path you're walking is a path of self-sacrifice. If you're going to follow me, you're going to follow in the way of one who sacrifices himself on your behalf. And like like was the case for Jesus. Our primary motivation to do that ultimately is our love for God. Okay, remember this kind of love isn't a warm feeling towards somebody. You don't have to be attracted to somebody to show them this kind of love. You just have to realize that God has loved you this way. And because God has loved you this way, you reach out and love to another. They, they may be very irritating, in fact. <laughs> the, the great Christian Corey Tinboom, who, who hid Jews along with the rest of her family, hid Jews during a, a Nazi occupation of, of her country. She says in, in her writing that a couple of the people they were hiding were really obnoxious. <laughs> One guy in particular just rubbed her the wrong way. He was sort of complaining and, you know, just sort of a negative person. But she was exercising her faith by showing love to this man and risking her life, ultimately, for his safety. Not out of any warm feeling for him, but because she believed it was the will of God for her to exercise love toward that person. If you start asking that question, I think, who is God putting in my life right now, today, who is he putting into my life now for me to love? Not, not to talk about it, not necessarily to say that you love them, not necessarily to engage in some kind of uh, affection toward them, but to, to exercise this kind of self-sacrificial love. Who has God put in my life that I can do this for? You know, this becomes a wonderful way for you to enhance your relationship with Jesus. We talked about that sub-theme of assurance, and we won't get into that. It's, it's in the next verses, but 
But as you, as you engage in this, as you even take just small steps of self-sacrifice, it's going to help you. For one, it's going to help you understand God's love for you better. There's nothing like doing a little self-sacrificing to help you appreciate the sacrifice that God has made for you. And as you engage in that sacrificing of self, you become all the more aware of the love of God for you. And you reflect more fully his image because he is a self-sacrificing God. Our communion service in just a few moments is going to be remembering what John is talking about here, isn't it? When we gather around this table, we're, we're following through with Jesus' command to us to remember his death. He took elements, the unleavened bread and the wine of the Passover. They were part of the old covenant meal, the old covenant remembrance meal. And he created this new covenant remembrance meal. That's why he spoke of the wine as the blood of my, as my blood of the new covenant. He's established this covenant meal for us in which we, we remember his love for us and laying down his life for us. And we also are here at this table professing our love for him, confessing that we depend upon him alone for salvation. And by sharing it together as a congregation, we're in a sense committing ourselves to loving one another at the same time, aren't we? So this is a meal of remembrance for us, but it's also a meal of commitment. You are, in a sense, reaffirming your vows before God, reaffirming your, your relationship with him as his child and saying, I desire to reflect your love in my life. And, and we believe as Christians that we are spiritually strengthened in that through this sacrament, that there's something real happening here beyond just taking some, some physical nourishment into our bodies. There is a spiritual nourishment that happens here where God builds us up and enables us to love as he has loved us. Let's pray that he would enable us to do that. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are uh, for the love that you have shown to us. We're grateful that, that that love doesn't depend upon anything appealing about us. We didn't do anything to earn this love. Uh, we, we didn't merit it in any way. And, and so that reassures us in a, real, in a real sense that we can't lose it because it's not dependent upon us. We thank you, Lord, for your love for us and pray that as we remember that in this sacrament, that, that you would renew our devotion to you and that you would, would spiritually nourish us so that we can, we can follow you in your way and love one another as you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.